Hello and welcome to another Q&A episode. So I'm answering some questions that have been sent in by you, the UA community. Stay tuned. I'm going to be answering a question about prefab homes that's come in from Meredith and Gabrielle is asking about her south-facing home design. So let's dive in. Welcome to Get It Right with the Undercover Architect. This is the podcast all about designing, building or renovating your home. I'm your host, Amelia Lee. Think of me as your secret ally. I am on a mission to help you create a home that makes your life better, whoever you're working with and whatever your dreams, your location or your budget. Together, we'll uncover the nitty gritty of how to get it right and how to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in. So join me now. Now we're going to get to those questions and answers really soon, but first I want to let you know about something that I think will be super helpful to many of you. This episode is brought to you by my free online workshop, Five Ways to Get It Right in Your Home Design. Look, with all the ideas and the inspiration and whoever you're working with or whether you're designing your home yourself, it can be super hard to design and then commit to a floor plan and have certainty and know confidently that it's going to create the home that you dream of. As an architect with 25 years of industry experience and having designed hundreds and hundreds of homes for homeowners like you, I know that there are key elements to every successful design and that there are specific characteristics that ensure a home will suit you now and always. In this free online workshop, I share tips, ideas, strategies, things to avoid, things to get right to really help you know how to get it right in your home design. And this free online workshop, it's available to watch now at a time convenient to you. So just head to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash five ways. And that's the number five ways, W-A-Y-S. And that link will be in the resources as well. Now let's get on with the episode. So our first question is from Meredith. She's been looking at prefab and modular homes as an option for the home that she and her partner plan to build. And she's wondering if there's anything particular to be aware of. Hi, Amelia. My name is Meredith. I'm really enjoying your podcast. Thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge. Um, We're currently living in Queensland, but plan on building a retirement slash holiday home on acreage in Victoria in the next couple of years. We've been looking at the option of building a modular home and wondering if you will be covering this um, subject, modular and prefab homes, in any future podcasts. Also, are there any particular things I need to look out for when designing and planning a modular home? Thank you. Oh, this is another great question. And it's a question I receive a lot, actually, uh, from people in the UA community and from homeowners generally. And uh, good news is that it's a topic that I will be talking about in 2020. I have it on my list of things to really dive into um, because it's something that I've personally been super interested in for a long, long time now. You know, 15 years ago, I remember going and looking at uh, prefab uh, factories. I remember I'm trying to think, I remember going to Hutchinson's who were doing a lot of mining prefab buildings. And I remember going to their big kind of, uh, I suppose they had a, they had a big industrial, like big open air shed where they were building them. But then they also had this great big sort of concreted area where they were then sort of assembling them and then cutting them back up into pieces to be able to transport them out to, you know, mining 
settlements and those types of things. And it was a huge, huge operation. And uh, that's got to be a decade ago. So it's it's really interesting to sort of see how much um, prefab and modular and kit uh, homes have really escalated and improved in that de- that decade and what's available to you now and just the sheer number of options and also a lot of really passionate businesses doing a lot in terms of creating really sustainable options as well. So I think it's a definitely a great alternative to look at and it suits particular types of homeowners and particular types of sites and can be a really great, you know, alternative. So I'm going to take through take you through some of the things to think about just so that we've got a bit of an introduction to it and then as I said in 2020 I'll be definitely diving it into into it in far more detail. So there are different types uh, when we talk when we think about sort of these type of uh, ready-made home. Uh, so there's the modular, there's prefab, uh, there's kit homes and then there's also alternatives like converted shipping containers. So, and, you know, sometimes they may, may be something that's completely pre-built offsite and delivered, you know, as a locked up, ready to go uh, type home. Some of them, you, there'll be componentry that needs to be put together uh, on site that's relatively finished, but still needs to be assembled and put together. And then in other cases, you're basically getting a kit of parts and building the external shell and then having to do the fit out like a traditional build. So, you know, there's a big range of what's available and uh, a big range of sort of what your level of involvement will be or the people that you'll need to involve on site in order to get the finished home. I visited um, recently, I actually visited, there was a, what was known as a tiny home expo. It was basically a company that's local to me. They're in, they established themselves in Lismore, uh, last year I believe and they build uh, you know like a tiny home that's on a trailer so it's four and a half to five tons so it requires a particular type it's not something you can necessarily tow behind a car but they were these uh, you know tiny homes that could be towed around and based on whether you uh, had people staying in them for a particular length of time they were giving handouts about what the local council deemed to be temporary housing versus to be permanent and what that might mean in terms of your approvals so there's lots of options and uh, lots of different ways that you can sort of look at this now there's big suppliers so I mentioned Hutchinson's builders they've been doing this for some time there's companies like Modscape who have been a leader in uh, this type of prefab housing and have done a really good job in terms of um, I suppose I remember watching them on television doing you know they they did a project where the prefab element actually got dropped in to the top floor of an apartment building to create a whole new apartment um, but they also do you know acreage and rural pop- properties as well. Um, Archiblocks is another one, Prebuilt is another one. Uh, there's a lot of companies doing sort of little holiday studios or granny flats uh, and those types of things that can be you know, put into somebody's back garden or on somebody's rural site. And then there's that trailer option that I just mentioned. So, um, you know, lots of different ways that you can think about this. Now, 
of course, town planning legislation is a big thing to factor in with all of these different options. So it's a case of really understanding what's permissible in your area, whether there's any restrictions on uh, prefab construction, any expectation about the materiality, how it's sitting on the ground, how it's connected into services, whether it needs to be, um, whether it's, you know, you're planning on having it as a permanent structure or you're looking at it being temporary accommodation. Sometimes, particularly if it's a secondary dwelling, there'll be rules about how far away from the existing house it can be and the length of time that somebody can be accommodated in it. So it's really important that you understand exactly what's stipulated in your local planning rules, if there are any limits on size, uh, on square meterage and uh, understanding all of those types of things. Because uh, I know that um, the granny flat or the dual living, you know, that's a big thing that's definitely being targeted as something that's going to help, uh, you know, handle density issues and the need for additional housing. Um, but you look at somewhere, <laughs> even if you just look at somewhere like Byron Bay, where it seems like every man and their dog has put a little studio in their backyard to rent out on Airbnb. Um, and uh, so councils do crack down in those types of areas to as to what is allowed and and what is uh, able to be approved. And so you do need to navigate it and know your rights and know what is legally allowed before you get yourself into trouble. Now, the main reason that many people uh, choose this type of project is because, well, they initially go down this route is that they think that it might cost less. Um, but my experience with looking at prefab is that, and, and modular and kit, is that it's not necessarily always... Uh, less expensive. In fact, some of them that I've seen cost per more square meter than a project home would. Um, and you've got to remember too that oftentimes these are much smaller, uh, you know, housing sizes. We're dealing with obviously constraints due to transport and it being built inside a factory. And so you, you're amortizing the total cost of delivery over a much smaller area. So of course, that means that you're going to have you know, necessarily have a higher square meter rate of construction cost. And sometimes they can't, you know, they still will have um, sort of this, a lot of them will still have the standard things like, you know, some sort of kitchen, some sort of bathroom. And so there's, there's those things that you're not getting to, you know, those high intensive cost areas that might not necessarily be able to be spread out over large areas that are of a lower cost, like you would in a house. So um, they can sometimes be it can be difficult to kind of understand the cost cons comparison where you get true advantage from working with prefab or with kit um, or modular types of homes is the speed uh, because they, you know, they're being built in generally quality controlled and temperature con controlled and weather controlled environments. And uh, it's, it's this process of sort of this production type of building where there's systems, uh, systems and processes that enable efficiency. Um, and particularly if it is with a company that they build that type of construction all the time, uh, then, and you're buying something that's, that's a fairly standard plan and something that's part of their library or kit of parts, then then it's not like building a one-off house. It is, it's a bit more of a, um, it can still be very high quality design, very high quality finish, but there's a more of a conveyor belt sort of style delivery of it. So the speed of construction is a really big advantage. And if you're wanting to, you know, if, if it, it's this, there is this, this beautiful kind of attraction to the fact that you literally could kind of order your house and it might be that you're living in an existing home on the property uh, that needs to be demolished to make way for a new house or it might be that you're adding this 
extra dwelling or, you know, it's out on acreage somewhere that you're planning to move to once, once the home is there, you may not then necessarily need to move out like you would if you were demolishing a house and then sitting, you know, for six, between six and 12 months to watch the new one get built. Um, or you may not even, you know, the factory may be near you that it's being built in and then it's being trucked out to the site that you're, you know, you're going to live on. So you can visit it and inspect it within that building rather than having to travel out to your site to watch it get built in, you know, in situ. So there can be huge advantages with how this mode of delivery works based on what you're seeking to achieve with your project. Now, I see that a lot of these types of homes do seek to achieve a higher end finish because of this level of quality control that they can achieve. And so a lot of them are targeted at um, that higher end of uh, materials and choices of detailing and uh, finishes. So, you know, when you look at a modscape house, when you look at an Archie Blocks house, when you look at pre-built, Happy House is another one, um, you know, there's... They're really seeking to do lovely detailing, um, you know, good quality finishes, really high level of insulation. And there's an attention to detail that can happen because it's happening in a controlled environment that um, can be really powerful and, and create quite a different result than if it was being built on site. Now, there are, of course, then constraints of the delivery and the sizes. The fact that this is being built somewhere and then has to be transported somewhere else can have, will, of course, by necessity mean that you're going to have limitations on what can physically be transported. Now, that's not saying that you can – I mean, you've, you've potentially seen how people cut down entire houses to then be able to truck them from one site to another. If you look at how people will relocate a Queensland or a weatherboard house to a different site, you know, and if you've ever seen those being transported on, on the road, it's quite extraordinary to see how houses and buildings can be cut down into components to then be moved somewhere to be put back together. The best efficiency though from a prefab construction and modular type of approach is to work with transport sizes though and to really understand what the feasibility is of physically moving something from one place to another and you know every time I've looked at it there's these particular modular sizes that are based on you know, the width of a truck. And when you start getting wider than that, you then bring on extra implications in terms of when it can physically be transported and whether it needs a police escort or not. And that's going to then change the cost of delivery from getting it from one place to another. So understanding that early and seeing what it's going to physically mean for your property um, is going to be really essential for you managing those transport costs and managing those budgetary components. And, you know, when you're working with companies that have been doing this for some time, they've got a really good understanding of different areas, different, you know, road requirements, those types of things. So, um, but I do remember, you know, visiting that Hutchinson's uh you know, facility, and they had built an entire. It was like a washroom, um, a washroom kind of building. So it basically was when guys came in from the mines, they would then go and be able to have showers and get changed. And this thing was huge. So I was standing in it, walking around. I think there was a, there might have even been a kitchen facility from memory. Like it was this massive kind of building that had all of these you know, components off it. And when you stood outside and looked at it, they had cables tying it down to keep it all stable whilst they built it. And basically what had happened was they'd built it in components. They'd then assembled it in this big kind of concreted area with all of these cable tie downs to keep it stable. They were fitting it all out internally, 
And then, but you could see all of the, like the joints inside it where they were then going to be able to pull it back apart, to put it back on trucks, to ship it to where it needed to be um, or truck it to where it needed to be, to then be able to put it back together easily. And it was an extraordinarily, like it was a huge building. So it really fascinated me to see, um, you know, and I just what's possible. And you can see when you look at some of these websites of these prefab companies where they they're doing you know prefab but they're doing it in a modular sense where you might buy the bedroom pavilion and you might buy the kitchen living dining pavilion and then you might buy the alfresco or outdoor entertaining pavilion and those things then come to site and you get these joining components um, you know and you're basically getting three trucks delivered and you know it's that type of process some of the companies they can put more than one of their boxes or prefab units on a truck at a time. So you can understand whether you've got height restrictions or those types of things in terms of, you know, if you live somewhere where the only way in is under a bridge that is, you know, three and a half metres above the ground, then that's going to uh, limit what can physically come to you and how how it's, um, you know, how many trucks I suppose need to deliver whatever you're doing. So it's really a case of understanding that at a level of detail and the machinations of what that all looks like. Now, the other thing to be aware of is that um, with some of the companies that I've spoken to, they still need a builder to be running the license and running the construction and the preparation of your site. So, uh, and you know, this won't be with all companies, but some of them will have the builder's license for the construction of their part in their factory. But then you still need to get a builder who will do all of your site foundations, all of your services establishment, running all the services from wherever they terminated at the edge of your site into your site, you know, all of the engineering of the footings um, and the construction of all of those things so that then the prefab item can come and plug into all of that. And so sometimes you still need to obviously then have somebody who's going to be on site coordinating all of that. Sometimes that may not be the company that you're buying the prefab component from, so or the modular component from. Um, So it's a case of really understanding what is the flow of delivery, what does it look like, what are your obligations and what does the company provide and where so that you really make sure there's no gaps or holes in between that process that is going to run into troubles for you. So, and, you know, what local consultants are you going to need in terms of who provides engineering? Are they used to working with this type of structure? And so, you know, uh, really that you're across sort of what that mode of delivery looks like. Now, in terms of your physical site, there's going to be things that make this type of approach much more straightforward than others. So, of course, your site conditions, your site access is going to be really essential. If you've got, you know, uh, power cables across the front of your site, if you live on a narrow street, if, um, you know, if this is something that needs to be craned into place, then all of those, you need to understand what is access going to mean? Are you going to have to do things like apply to permission to your local energy provider to get the power lines dropped so that you can actually crane it in? Are you going to need to get traffic control in your street so that a truck can come down with these items on it? You know, what's that going to look like and how much is that going to cost? Uh, is is it possible? Do you live on a sloping site? And so a truck can only go so far into it and then it needs to be craned from the truck location and where it can park to where the prefab home or the modular home is going to get dropped into. So really understanding sort of what the feasibility and the access looks like in terms of getting this object into your site. Um, 
the, the I mentioned the you know transport sizes and those types of things. You'll often see that these types of homes don't have any eaves on them uh, because they're trying to maximise out the internal area for that ma- that maximum transport width. And so understanding then what's that going to mean for how the home protects you from shade and from heat, from weather. Uh, are you going to be looking at adding on appendages once it's built on site? You know, are you going to want to add window hoods? Are you going to want to add eaves? Uh, are you going to be looking at adding some structures around the edge of it to give you that shade? And what's that process going to be so that you really uh, don't compromise the thermal performance and how it functions and feels as a home purely because it's getting delivered the way that it needs to and it's designed the way that it is. And then, of course, you're going to be looking at how it connects into services to your electricity, gas, water, sewerage. What's that look like? What's required? What's the order of work? Who's responsible? And um, how will you get that all approved and signed off? Um, As I said earlier, a lot of these homes are really... uh, promoted as much higher insulation levels, really good thermal performers. I see um, lots of them using some of the alternative materials, uh, you know, like the structurally insulated panels and refrigeration paneling and those types of things to get that very thin wall construction with really high insulation values. So that may mean that the internal walls are not made from plasterboard, you know, and that may then impact where lighting can go or how you can hang pictures and photos on the inside of the home. So really understanding what the materiality of it is and what that might mean in terms of the implications of how you live there. Um, now, I mentioned timing-wise, really great because you can have shorter timeframes in terms of like what it looks like to go from it being delivered to you moving in, but that may also change the model of financing that you need to use. So it's a case of really doing some due diligence before you dive into the process, speaking to a mortgage broker or to your bank to understand what does it look like to pay payments to the prefab company when the house is being built in your, you know, in a factory and then what the order of payments are and uh, how that then might change the type of financing that you get and the type of contract that you have with the company. You really want to make sure that you're across all of that so that you don't get into trouble. And Again, understanding who's responsible for what, whether you need a builder with a local license to be able to uh, to manage those types of things. I mean, some of these companies can deliver interstate. Um, if they can put it on a road or they can put it on the back of a train, it can get to you and it can be delivered to you. I've even seen people buying shipping container homes out of China. So they're importing them and, uh, you know, putting them together and uh, they're they're getting the componentry, you know, fairly complete on delivered to them by sea from China. So it's there's it's incredible what's available and just how global this is. And because these items are actually built to be transported, the kind of the sky's the limit in where they're being transported for and really transported from and really understanding what's possible for you. So I'm going to pop a few links uh, in the resources uh, of some articles that I found whilst I was doing a little bit more research, but do stay tuned in 2020. If this is something that you're curious about or interested in, um, you know, I'm really looking forward to diving into this in more detail. If you have any information, if this is something you're passionate about and you want to send me any information about people that you've been checking out, companies that you've been looking at anything you've been finding in your travels and research by all means I'd love to hear I'm you know I'm at the moment 
I'm collating all of this information because I really want to make this a fantastic kind of bundle of really helpful stuff for anybody that's looking at a prefab or a kit or a modular home. So just shoot me an email on hello at undercoverarchitect.com and I'd love to hear from you. So hopefully that's been helpful and uh, yeah, always worth exploring the alternatives in terms of what's available for creating the home that you really want. Now, our next question is from Gabrielle, and she's looking forward to a new home that they're planning on building on a block of land that has some fantastic views to the south, but she has a specific question about which side to orient her living space. Hi, Amelia. My name's Gabrielle. I live on the south coast of Victoria. We've recently bought a block, a beautiful block. It is south looking. It overlooks a river. It's gorgeous, and we'd love to build our dream home on there. I've looked through and heard all your podcasts and looked through lots of information about building south and we'll certainly incorporate plenty of your suggestions about bringing north light into the home. However, where we live is quite cold much of the year. We only get a handful of really hot days. And so then when we're designing our living and our fresco spaces, I'm wondering whether we should be designing to the southeast or the southwest. When you're in a really cold climate, Is western afternoon, evening sun still the devil or is it something we can actually utilise to warm up our living areas in the evening? Uh, Any recommendations would be gratefully appreciated. Thanks, Amelia. Now, when you look at the climate zone of the south coast of Victoria, uh, most of it is zone 6, which is mild temperate. And so with the correct design approach, according to the yourhome.gov website, it's possible to achieve a high star rated efficient home in this zone. And the primary goal is to lower heating and cooling from artificial means. Now, the challenge with a site that primarily faces south is that, you know, of course, as, as, as Gabrielle has identified, is getting access to that northern light. So anything that you can do to ensure that you're bringing northern light into the home, especially the living areas, is going to be essential for its comfort and performance, especially in winter. So this can be really challenging, particularly if you've got a south-facing view, because you're going to be putting lots of glass to make that great connection with that view and generally just creating a source of heat loss for your home. So particularly in the colder months of the year that you've just got this great big kind of Oh, just this semi-permeable membrane on the back of your house that's going to let lots of heat out. So I'll talk a bit more about how to consider that, but it's really essential that you don't let go of really nailing getting northern sunlight into those rear areas. Do whatever you can in your design to make that happen. And in that podcast of All Things South, uh, which you reference, you know, I've got lots of suggestions and ideas. The C-shaped design might be a really good strategy for you to be able to get that north-facing light into the rear of your south-facing living spaces. Don't let it go, though. I see so many homeowners just think they kind of just can't get it to work, and so it drops off the radar. It feels too hard. They feel like it's just, um, you know, coming. they're making other choices a priority. It has to be your priority. It has to be a priority to get north northeasterly light into those south-facing living spaces. Otherwise, you'll be sitting there with that view and just not getting the full benefit of how amazing that space can feel or how well it can be thermally managed by natural means. So I really encourage you to keep it as a priority whilst you're designing uh, because you can have both, okay? You can have the fantastic south-facing view and you can have the lovely qualities of northern light. Now, 
The other things that you're going to need to consider because you're in an area where there's a predominance of cold weather is thermal mass in your construction is going to be really useful. So thinking about how you're going to improve the thermal mass of the uh, the home's construction, the types of building systems you might use, how you might you know insulate uh, or use a concrete slab, how you're going to get natural light and warmth onto that slab. The yourhome.gov website has lots of information on thermal mass and how to use thermal mass in a design and how to really ensure that it's going to help your home maintain its thermal comfort. So that's what thermal mass is all about. It's about creating, I suppose, a heaviness in the building itself, in the building envelope, and then using the passive uh, design methodologies of the warmth from the sun to warm up those heavy building materials so that then as the temperature drops, that warmth can be uh, released into the indoor air temperature and improve it. And the reverse can happen in summer as well. You can shade those heavier building elements, keep them cool so that as the day heats up, they're staying cool, they're shaded. And then at the end of the day, when the home would potentially otherwise be sitting there and be hot, uh, that cool coolness can be being brought back into the internal air temperature of the home. So it's something that can work year round and you can do it obviously with heavy building materials, well insulated building materials, specific building systems, really worthwhile exploring and thermal mass in your construction is going to be really helpful for you to manage the air temperature overall. Now uh, thinking about the insulation generally so that any heating or cooling that you do do be through artificial means or through passive design measures is going to uh, be maintained inside the home so that your home is in a sieve so that you're not doing making all of these efforts to then just see that all dissipate to the outside. Um, Double glazing is something that's definitely going to be worthwhile considering and budgeting for and really keeping as a priority as well particularly for any south-facing glass that you've got making the most of that view and having a chat to local double glazing suppliers to get their advice about what types of glass to put into the panes of the double glazing what type of frames to choose um, because you're with that south facing glass my expectation would be that your goal is going to be to keep the warmth in because you're in a predominantly cold area and so looking at the type of glass that you might use on the inner layer of the double glazing to make sure that you're radiating that heat back into the home um, so that you're not losing it out. So it's, you know, speaking to local specialist installers and double glazing suppliers and also checking out uh, the episode that I did with the Australian Window Association and their resources that have what they have on their website can be really handy. Uh, managing the air tightness of your home is also going to be another uh, way of maintaining that indoor air temperature and the indoor air quality. And then obviously looking at low energy heating methods that you can use and potentially supplementing your energy needs through things like solar. So there's uh, some fantastic resources. There's a really great uh, free Facebook group called, I think, My Energy Efficient Electrical Home um, that has a wealth of information about heat pumps and uh, solar power and what people have done to lower the energy use of their home overall. Um, Really some great, fantastic moderators in there who have a lot of uh, knowledge in that area. And that can be a really great resource to use when you're trying to create a sustainable home. Now, with that south-facing view, um, 
you're going to want to put lots of glazing in that orientation. Know though that your climate zone generally discourages lots of glazing to that orientation. And having spoken to homeowners who've not had obviously a south-facing view, but their main orientation has been to the south, uh, and they've but they've wanted a passively designed home, they've actually made the choice to have less glazing on their southern side. So that's not necessarily going to be something you want to do if you've got a beautiful view, but just be aware that then you're going to need advice on how you're going to have to treat that. So double glazing, as I said, but also considering your frame types and frame selection, the color of the frame that you choose, the type of glass that you choose, and what window furnishings you're going to put on the inside or on the outside of those openings so that you can manage the uh, heat loss, particularly in the colder months. Um, It's would be really worthwhile for you to be doing the modeling of the energy efficiency of the home whilst you're designing it. So if you got to listen to my podcast episode with Jenny Edwards uh, and Sarah Lebner from Lighthouse Architecture and Science, they're Canberra based and they talk about how they do energy modeling, which is the energy efficiency modeling that every Australian home needs uh, to be to have done as part of getting their building approval. But they actually do it as an iterative design process and tool through the design uh, of the home. So, um, and I've, I've seen actually a fair few UA community members have gone on to speak to Jenny and they're using her as a consultant with their own designer to do that modeling as part of the design process. So, you know, that's something that you could consider. It's really worthwhile because then you'll actually be able to predict the performance of your home and be able to change the design uh, to improve it. And understanding that, at this point in the design process will be essential for you knowing that the home's going to be comfortable to live in and um, and not cost you a fortune to run. Now, whether to prioritise the east or the west positioning on that southern side, which was the guts of your question. So you're, you know, so you're trying to figure out obviously whether to put your living on the southeasterly end or on the southwesterly end. So there's a few things to take into account here. Now, when you think about thermal mass, uh, it actually works well by getting by getting it happening early in the day. So, for example, if we're looking at thermal mass to ke- help keep our house warm in winter, then we want to get the sun's warmth onto that thermal mass object early and get it warming up throughout the course of the day so that it's sucking up lots of warmth and heat so that it can then give back that warmth as the temperature drops in the evening. Now, obviously, it's length of exposure to that heating sun is going to impact its amount that it's going to warm up. So, you know, having it on the easterly side, having that thermal mass being uh, and that those areas being on the easterly side of the home will enable the warmth of the sun in the cooler climate to get into those areas early and be improving those areas. Now, it's um, obviously it's going to be a case of that that's only going to happen at certain times of the year. If you do have a a facade or a rear uh, orientation of due south um, it's going to be a case of understanding exactly what times of the year that's going to happen so it definitely needs to work in association with northern light so that you have the maintenance ability during the day that you've got that daytime sunlight happening uh, and you can then manage the heat and cool based on the time of the year now western sun isn't necessarily evil if the heat in the summer is managed so um, obviously it's it has you know generally higher glare higher heat than that easterly morning morning sun because it's been around for longer if your home does face due south to the rear then you're talking about southwesterly sun which is the setting sun in summer so that's going to pack some particular punch but 
it's not necessarily going to, it will give you some radiant immediate heat of an afternoon or early evening, but it's not going to give you any potential kind of for that longer term working in association with northern light sort of thermal mass heating, if that makes sense. So, and sometimes uh, sitting in a space like a living room that is getting that afternoon sun can just be uncomfortable for TV viewing, for sitting there because the glare is just uncomfortable. Having that sun, you know, when you are using, you're more likely to kind of to be hanging out in that space of an afternoon moving into the evening, particularly in summer. Um, And so, you know, with daylight savings, those types of things. And so it can just be uncomfortable sitting there. Whereas in the morning, it's a different kind of enjoyment, a different kind of experience and doesn't necessarily, um, it's not as problematic to have horizontal light coming into a space of a morning uh, than of an evening. So it's really going to be a case of thinking about how you might use the living room space as well. If it is a place that you're going to be hanging out in the afternoon, the evening, understand exactly where that sun's going to be coming from, you know, use the Sunseeker app, have a look at the sun's movement. We're coming up to the summer solstice, uh, December 21, 22 will be the summer solstice. So at the time of recording this, um, that's going to be when the sun is highest in the sky. You can see it's going to be the furthest of south uh, when it sets and when it rises. So you'll be able to see exactly kind of what the, I suppose, the most extreme case scenario is. And you can see what the sun is doing and see how uncomfortable that setting sun is in terms of its experience to see whether you'd be happy sitting in your living room experiencing that. Um, But as I said, it's going to be just immediate radiant heat, won't have a lot of opportunity to be warming up any thermal mass that's going to give back warmth to you at night. So, and it is that thing too, that in, you know, I suppose in summer you'll be you'll be, if you do face due south in summer, you'll be experiencing that. But in winter, the the sun will actually be north of west. So you potentially won't be getting any sunlight in and you'll be losing lots of heat out the south facing glazing. So it's just a case of really thinking about how these things are going to work in combination with each other. Um, now, as I said, managing that heat loss out of windows during the day with double glazing and then thinking about blinds or curtains in the evening, um, helmets or, you know, some way of actually creating insulation around the inside of the window can be handy to just uh, stop that cool air moving in and out. So my personal preference would I'd be putting it on the southeastern side um, because I think the quality of light is nicer. It's more enjoyable um, throughout the day uh, than a southwesterly facing orientation. Um, But I would be definitely doing everything within my power to make sure that I was getting northerly light and northeasterly light into that living room space. And if it's on this, if you're putting your living room on the southeasterly end, then you can be looking at what you're doing on the other side to be getting that northeasterly light in and getting that living room working really well to an optimum orientation rather than putting it on the southwesterly end and dealing obviously with uh, trying to get northeasterly light on a diagonal um, you'll be you know it's a little bit more problematic whereas I can see in a lot of design solutions it being very straightforward to be exposing that northeasterly corner of the living area to be getting that northeasterly light into the rear of the living space and still enjoying the view to the south so hopefully that's been helpful and you can understand there was a fair bit of information crammed into a short space of time there. But yeah, I hope you found that helpful. 
Well, I do hope that you found that helpful and perhaps it has some relevance to your project or, you know, these are questions that you've been grappling with as well. Now, for links and resources that I mentioned in the podcast, head to the show notes or head to this episode on the Undercover Architect website where you'll be able to access those links and resources. Now, be sure to check out my free online workshop, Five Ways to Get It Right in Your Home Design. There's some incredibly useful information for the design of your new home or renovation. Honestly, it's an hour of your life that could save you thousands uh, in avoided mistakes, months of time in wasted effort and energy with consultants, and ultimately help you immensely on the journey to the home that you're dreaming of. So you can watch it at your convenience by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash five ways. Now tune in next time as I answer more questions from the UA community. We've got some fantastic topics being discussed for all kinds of projects, locations, budgets and dilemmas. As always, a huge thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye. Bye.